0: Steve, I thought you were a camping man. We weren't supposed to be doing this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got the, the weather man, uh, looked, uh, fooled me. So, checked the weather <laughs> on Sunday, and, and it was like 0% chance of rain going to be gorgeous. And then yesterday morning it was raining. And then we were like, uh, I, was, I called my dad who lives up, uh, kind of near where we we're going to go camping. And he said it was pouring rain, was supposed to rain all day. So, Normally, if it's, uh, you know, just me going hunting, who cares? I'll just go. And, you know, in my experience, you know, uh, the chance of it being really bad is is very small. Um, Even when they're saying 78% chance of rain, it it means it's an hour or two. Not, you know, at least here in Idaho, we don't get that rain that just comes in and you know 8 a.m to 8 p.m type of rain right it's just these storms that kind of come and go so Mm -hmm. but anyways with uh 11 month old and a three month old or three year old um we decided against uh dragging them up in the mountains and getting them soaking wet so we're leaving today yeah wise call man (laughs) (laughs) You you can go
0: camping just being stuck in your little trailer with the little kiddos while it's raining you might as well be home yeah we got some more uh, more questions to tackle today, kind of all over the map on some gear, some hunting, some uh, pack questions, which we'll kick off with a pack question. Guy wrote in and said, will you ever add different color or camo options for your packs? I got a new K3 a few months ago, and I love this setup so much, but I want one to match my camouflage clothing, which he wears Cryptic Highlander. He said, if you offered one in CryptoKylander, I'd buy another pack system tomorrow. I realize it's pretty expensive to add another line, so I'm just putting this out there and looking forward to hearing more about how you guys select camo patterns and colors for your packs.
1: Um, Yeah, it's a a multifaceted answer. Uh, A lot of it has to do with, um, I guess, the overarching theme is Exo is a small company, company adding For every color you add, adds, you know, and even us being small, it's like 30 new SKUs that I then have to stock, uh, you know, run through production, balance out. The um, one tricky thing that we always experience is like last year when we introduced something new like the K3 pack and all the accessories is figuring out how things break down. Um, Because, again, being small, and I'm sure if you've followed Exo over the years, it's not like we're – you know, we don't, we operate very differently. We, we're basically building every four to six weeks. We have a, a cycle of, of products like our SoShops shops working on it. You know, they deliver it to us by the time we get the next shipment from them, we've sold through most of what we've built um, prior. So we're, we don't have a ton of stock sitting at the warehouse and, and it fluctuates by time of year. I mean, we try to run a somewhat minimal, um, as low as we can in, in the slow months. And then we obviously ramp up for the busy summer months so that we have stock, you know, when, when everything's uh, going well. Um, so there's that whole aspect of it is just keeping, um, you know, we're a small company and, and it just gets way, way more complex, the more colors you add. Um, and then on the other side of it, there's, you know, some, I don't want to say politics is the right word, but like, you know, Sica, um, I mean, they've, they're their own, clothing company they make their own packs like people ask us to get packs in sitka sometimes and uh, we even had somebody email us in about getting a pack in kuyu <laughs> camouflage and i kind of you know laughed to myself because obviously they're you know they make their own packs and they're not going to license out their pattern to another pack company um and then like but for us we've always had i've known the guys uh, the original owners of first site for and for a long time, probably 10 years now. And uh, so we had a great relationship with them. They didn't make packs. They wanted some packs um, uh, in their Fusion and Cypher camouflage. We, we decided to do Fusion as the stock color that we did. And um, and it was kind of an easier decision. You know, We, we knew the guys. Um, I'm not a big camo pattern guy, but I do like the way that Fusion looks. I think it's aesthetically appealing uh, so it fit um and then cryptic we've actually i know uh, the guys from cryptic as well they're here in boise um to speak to, directly to this guy we did do a limited very very limited run of some highlander packs a few years ago but it was along the same lines of like i didn't think adding the you know uh, adding that camouflage pattern to the line offset the complexity of like the sales from it wouldn't offset the issues we'd have on the on the back side of of keeping things in stock and getting materials and all that stuff. So uh, that being said, we have um, been toying around with, if someone was paying attention, we posted photos, gosh, last November, December of the 1800 prototype. And it was in a cryptic altitude camouflage. We may do a limited run of that this summer. um, But that all depends on and hinges on, on production. If if things are going great and we've got good stock built up and, and we've got a three to four week window work and shift our whole production line over to that that's something we'll look at um so you might uh, if someone's really interested in a cryptic altitude pack because that altitude's a pretty good looking pattern uh, as well um so that may happen this summer but uh yeah there's just a lot of um things going on I, if if i'm being 100 percent honest i would love just you know to do a single color uh, and and call it good with that, it would know? make life so um, much easier. <laughs> it would make life so much easier for us. I mean, the uh, just the complexity of you know the fabrics come from different suppliers and then stocking it and making it is it's it's, it's uh, way more um, advanced, uh, complicated than people probably realize. Uh, uh, especially when on a backpack, if it's like a bino harness, you know, it's a one-off skew. That's pretty easy. Like if someone if we wanted to make our hip belt pouch and you know 10 different colors we could pretty easily manage that but but when you're talking about a pack and then you're talking about all the the bag sizes the belt sizes um and then all the accessories that trickle down from that everyone needs to match it just that it just kind of uh, gets exponential there so um yeah i guess that's it it's uh i remember uh i trent from uh, born and raised outdoors he was in town i think he was coming through like last october or november and I brought him by. Um, we had lunch together, and I brought him by the sew shop, and and he, he was just kind of like, holy sh—you know, like, <laughs> he had no idea, like, seeing all the levels of, of production from from the raw goods to the cutting to the sewing to the packaging to quality control to get into the warehouse and building it. I mean, he was, like, kind of blown away. Uh, for me, it's, you know, like, uh, I've gotten used to it, right? We've been doing it for so long that it was kind of funny to have like a someone from the outside come in and what they thought they knew and versus what they saw. They were like, "Wow, that's way, way, way more complex than I ever realized." Yeah, yeah, cool. Long answer for him.
0: <laughs> No, it's good, man. People yeah. like the behind the scenes yeah. stuff for sure. And then if uh, if you are one of the guys who just heard about altitude, or you know, we did a sneak peek of like multicam black in the past. We don't as you said, Steve. We don't have like firm dates, plans. There might be limited runs in the future. Um, we don't have a wait list or anything for that. The best way is just make sure you get our emails. Um, you can just go to exomountaingearcom forward slash newsletter. If we do any limited runs like that, um, obviously we would probably talk about in the podcast here, um, you know, maybe do social posts, but emails are just the best way to make sure you get directly notified. So if you don't already get emails from us and you're interested in that, then that'd be, that'd be the way to go. All right, let's uh, transition to finding water. So this guy wrote in, said he's making his fifth trip to Colorado uh, this coming fall, and that will be his third archery elk hunts. He uses Onyx Maps and Google Earth as research tools. and He's found it difficult to know if good water sources are available in new areas that he's planning to backpack hunt into. Uh, He's had previous years where finding water was difficult, So he's asking, what are some methods or tools I can use to know if drainages have water or if they are dry? I prefer to carry just enough water for the initial pack-in and then find a reliable source of water in the backcountry. So tips, tools, strategies you use, Steve, if you're heading into a new area to kind of pre-identify water sources or maybe gauge, you know, do you need to pack in water? Um... Is it going to be wet? What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, um, lots of thoughts. I mean, water is king there when you're backpacking. You can only go, you can only pack so much, and, and it depends on how much you're willing to pack, right? Um, but there's within reason, you know, the most I'm ever doing is like six, six liters. Um, the, uh, basically for me, if I'm going into a completely new area, I'm using, all the tools I have, um, and basically with maps and imaging to locate water sources and then I'm going to mark them, um, or at least kind of make a mental note of where they should be, right? Uh, a lot of that will hinge. I mean, I think you kind of have, maybe this comes through some experience, but you're going to have a good idea. If you're in typical elk country, there's going to be water everywhere. Uh, you know, like, uh, there's, um. You know, our central Idaho stuff, uh, there's just literally your feet are wet, you know, nonstop all day long because you just, you know, hike in and you come across little springs and creeks and seeps and uh, really good elk country typically has a lot of water. That being said, there's there's areas I hunt elk that are very, very dry. But um, I I guess you're going to have an idea of the country that you're heading into. Typical mule deer, early season high country stuff is going to be very, very dry. Uh, for me at least my experience on that so um i can relate to a deer tag i had a couple of years ago going into a brand new area i basically used um they like said all the mapping that i had available so i uh my garmin inreach the uh, earthmate app uh, you can download um the quad sheets for that area and so the old usgs quad sheets are pretty good sources. I mean they'll have they'll list springs on there. you'll see little tiny ponds that show up on there. It'll show you kind of like tick marks for seasonal creeks and then show you more solid solid blue lines for uh, when when waters should be flowing year round. and then uh, so I'll look at that. I'll also then kind of take that information and then at home on your computer when you've got a big screen uh, and you know hopefully like high resolution. I'm going to jump on Google Earth and zoom into the country really tight. And like on on mule deer stuff, if I see like this big brown hillside and obviously this nice like little patch of green and a draw or something like that, definitely going to make a big mental note of that spot, right? That that to me means halfway up on the mountain, there might be a spring coming out of the side of the hill. Um, That specific deer hunt, I remember like up at the very head of this draw, it was just brown for like three quarters of a mile underneath it up at the very top of it uh i could just see this green patch and and sure enough when i was on that hunt and and got to that spot there was water there so um so yeah quad sheets google earth and then also uh, you know i use onyx uh their their topo maps you know they just things just show up differently on there um and so i'll kind of look at that as well and overlay the three of those Um, at least mentally and and just kind of try to pick out areas when it comes to, um, boots on the ground. I have a, um, even if country I'm, uh, been in a lot or brand new country, every time I come across a water source, I mark that I stop right there, pull out my uh, Earthmate app and and Earthmates typically where I do all my, uh, marks, uh, pinpoints, uh, and I'm going to mark that spot, uh. Uh, and just put a little water icon there. even if I have you know no intention of like coming back to that point, you know like my destination's a couple miles in front of me or whatever. Uh, I always just mark water because you just never know it could be on that trip. it could be four years later uh, that could come in handy having that mark on your on your map. so um, yeah, I guess that's the kind of um, the little things I do and and then, and then obviously just going in a new country, you just need to be conservative and pack more than you want. And, um, hopefully as you find water sources, you you realize you don't have to continue packing that much water. So, uh, and then I'm trying to think, you know, if it's, if it is super dry country and I come across a, a place, I'll probably, uh, camel up, right? Like sit there at that spring and drink like a full liter of water, uh, just to get really hydrated. Um, before I, before I fill up my bladder and start hiking, um, just drink way more than you feel like drinking at that time. Um, just to kind of help. So little things you can do. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, it's, I mean, I'd say 25 to 40% of my hunts on any given year, like you spend a couple hours just hiking around looking for water and, and trying to you know find it. It's, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah.
0: Yeah, my process is super similar. I start with uh, topo maps or the quad sheets and just kind of get a feel for at least on those maps what have they indicated as water sources and then try to cross-reference that with aerial imagery and kind of visibly look for that. Um, and then just another thing, I don't think you mentioned or that or I spaced out Steve, is in Google Earth, if you're using Google Earth, is use that time slider uh, mm-hmm. where you can change the the imagery um, from when it was captured. And sometimes looking at that in different seasons or even different uh, types of imagery or resolutions is gonna show you a bit, uh, a different perspective on that. And I've found you know, what looked to be dry and, and one imagery, you look at that um, same exact area, but with another capture um, and you can kind of see a little bit differently. So there's, um, if guys aren't familiar, there's just a slider where basically you can look at different imagery of the same place over time. And that can be helpful um, to use for that specifically. And then like you said, Steve, just thinking through while you're out there, um, it's easy to get just caught up in the hunts and not planning ahead. Um, and this, you know, it, it's probably more prevalent, obviously, in really dry country, where if you're at an isolated water source, but there's even been times where it's just paid off to go, we just crossed this water source, um, you know, we're a new country, it's a late afternoon and thinking through, do we have enough water to get us through cooking for dinner tonight, and then, you know, coffee in the morning type thing. And so just that pre-planning, and as you said, when you encounter a water source, marking it's good, drinking then is good if needed, and then just thinking of planning ahead, especially if it's late in the day of can I get through essentially tonight and into hunting tomorrow um, and starting to move again and have enough water for that. So just keep those things in mind in terms of planning ahead. Um, Side topic, Steve... I'm curious, though, why do you keep your marks in EarthMate versus Onyx Maps?
1: Um, I think I just prefer the navigate. I prefer how EarthMate works. Um, Onyx has some features that are really, really nice. Um, but I just prefer EarthMate in, uh, for a lot of reasons. It's just simpler to operate to me.
0: Yeah, so your custom points in EarthMate... Are those mm-hmm. backed up to the cloud? You save those automa or like you have to back up those? Yeah, manually? they're
1: they're backed up um, to yeah my Earthmate account, and then um, and then yeah, I can actually easily just log into the Earthmate account, download all the GPX files, and import them back into Onyx. And I've done that a handful of times uh, over the years. So basically, the mark after a season's over and I've got all the marks, I can then dump it into Onyx if for you know, some specific reason I'm using onyx that day. But Got it. One thing I was going to add on the water is one I've started to do this the last few years is have a little one liter platypus bottle, uh, that's filled up with dirty water. and um, and then that I just like put in the pack and it's kind of my reserve. So if I'm in country that I'm, you know, unsure of the water sources, that one liter like guarantees I have enough to cook dinner or make coffee in the morning and and have, uh, you know, a few drinks of water the next morning while hunting until I find water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been kind of a – when guys talk about what, what they really like about analgene bottles, it's very visible how much they have. That, that's my kind of solution to that problem is is I've always got that one one liter bottle in the pack that, um, I you know, I know is there. And it's kind of that backup reserve. It's like the reserve tank on the gas tank on your motorcycle, right? Like when you run out, you're really not out. You're still good. So Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, that point leads to the whole filter discussion and why it's advantageous to have a filter. We don't have to sit at the water source and filter it at that time. You can just essentially scoop up dirty water, store dirty water, and then filter it at a later time. So that's just another consideration to think through on your choice of filtering and treatment. Yeah. All right. We had a few different questions on dehydrating. Um, The first one basically just said, I've heard Mark mention that he makes his own dehydrated meals. I'm interested in getting started and making my own, and was wondering if there are any plans for a podcast on the equipment needed, the process and lessons learned on making your own, etc. We actually did one. Um, it's 126, and that was a full in-depth discussion on doing your own dehydrated meals um, with. Uh, a guy who wrote a book on that, uh, who's a backpacker, not a hunter, but a backpacker, and has done a ton of experimenting, has an amazing website and book, free recipes, all kinds of stuff. So I would check out 126 um, if you're interested in that. In terms of my experience, it's way easier than I thought it would be to dehydrate uh, foods, uh, whether it's individual um, snacks, individual ingredients, or you're doing just all meals um you know i talked about it in the podcast but one of the things i love about it is there's a ton of things you can just dehydrate like we we made this one of our favorite uh like it's kind of a chili type recipe we made it the other night we have a bunch of leftovers you can just spread that out dehydrate it package it and then i already have meals for september with like almost zero effort Um, because it was something we had cooked anyway it's able to be dehydrated and then it packs and stores well um, for the fall. So there, there's a lot to it. It is simple. Um, I understand it. It's like one of those topics that can seem overwhelming. But with like a little bit of reading and trying, uh, it's just way easier than um, than you probably think it is. So I would check out that podcast one twenty six. Um, there's good, like I said, a million online recipes. Um, and then in terms of equipment. Uh, you can get started incredibly cheap. You can get, um, a dehydrator for probably $60, um, on Amazon. It's going to be smaller. Obviously, um, I went ahead and I knew it was something I wanted to stick with and kind of the best of the best, if you will, if you can spend two to $300 is an Excalibur. Um, they're just known for being one of the best. They also have a really good warranty on them as well. That's the direction that I went and I'm really glad that I did. I did the nine tray, which can dehydrate uh, a lot at a time for sure, which is nice. Um, You know, you can essentially make one large batch instead of running into hydrator in six different small batches. Um, And we use it, I mean, not constantly, but we do use it year round. Like one of our favorite snacks is just doing our own dehydrated fruit, especially like apples and bananas and stuff's delicious. Um, But yeah, I make my own meals as well. A second part of that, and this was a totally different email, was asking, when you are making your dehydrated custom meals and not necessarily following a recipe, you obviously don't have instructions from the packaging. So how do you decide how much water to add for rehydration? Is it simply trial and error? Do you simmer the water until it's no longer runny? What is the uh, strategy there? I would say yeah it is trial and error. Um it depends on the types of food that you're rehydrating. I will typically when I package food, um, I'll write how much uh food it is based on like dry like so once it's dried before I package it, I'll basically measure like is this three quarters of a cup of this certain meal? Is it half of a cup, etc.? Um, and so that way I can kind of mentally make a note of, Oh, last time I did this three quarters of a cup, I added X amount of water, but for the first time it is kind of trial and error. And just, again, don't overthink that add what looks to be about right as you're, and I would maybe err on the, on side of maybe not having quite enough water at first. And then I just always check the meal after say five minutes and, and visibly go, okay, yeah, that's going to need some more water. I can add to it. Um, if you end up with too much water, yeah, you can either simmer it, you can strain it, you can wait a little bit longer on the rehydration process and it should soak up more. But, um, long story short there, it pretty much is trial and error. Again, don't overthink it. You almost, in a lot of ways, guys, you kind of can't mess up the process terribly, but yeah, episode 126 great uh, resource to check out if you're interested in
1: dehydrating. I think you should, uh, do like a video on it. That'd be kind of fun. A little video series.
0: Yeah, that actually came up on the, the Facebook user group because someone was asking me questions and I put them to the podcast and they're like, I'm a visual learner. Please make a video. <laughs> so, you're, the, you're the second one I'm, to get on that bandwagon, magic. Steve.
1: Yeah, for me to see, like, you know, yeah, just if you could do somehow do a two minute video, like, OK, I just cook my chili, do this, do this, do this. And bam. Yeah, I like it.
0: Make it happen, Mark. As if I didn't have enough to do, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That is one random. Since you just said chili, it did remind me one thing to look for. Um, if you're gonna, especially if you're gonna do things like chili or complete meals, like one of my go tos is making a mix of uh, like ground elk meat with rice. I typically do like a dirty rice type deal. Add some black beans, make that whole concoction, just cook it as you normally would, and then dehydrate it. So if you're doing something like that or a chili, make sure that whatever dehydrator you go with doesn't just have mesh screens, which are popular um, you know if you're dehydrating fruit or something solid jerky what have you you can use a mesh screen it gets good airflow that's great but if you're doing something with any liquid content kind of soupy chili type stuff you're going to need some sort of liner or a more solid um, tray so obviously the liquid's not just pouring through a mesh screen so those can typically be bought separately like I did from Excalibur but just keep in mind, I'm not sure if you go with like a lot of the cheaper dehydrators or those around units with like a hole in the middle, uh, like the Nesco dehydrators. I'm not sure if they have um, the right liners for those. They probably do, but just pro tip, something to look for. All right, arrow question, Steve. We had a follow-up. We talked about arrows on the TSS episode 19. This guy wrote in... Um, with not a single question, kind of a whole bunch of points, interesting topics to maybe hit on. I'll try and summarize and make a longer story short, but he's 6'5", has a 31 inch draw length. And so he naturally has A, a longer arrow, but B, a lot of energy through his bow with his long draw, which means he needs a stiff spine. A stiffer spine's typically a heavier arrow. And so long story short, He's trying to get his total arrow to weigh around 500 grains. A couple caveats to that. One is he wants higher FOC of at least 12. He also wants to run lighted knocks because he says he has a hard time following his arrow without them, which not only adds overall weight, but it's also going to offset your FOC. And any added weight also even further dictates you need a stiff spine. So to get what he wants... With lighted knocks, stiff spine, the arrows he's choosing, his arrows are coming out heavier than he wants. So they're coming out like 550 grains, and then because they're so heavy, he's having trouble getting FOC without adding even more weight. So long story short, he's balancing. My arrows are super heavy. I can't get FOC because the overall shaft's heavy, and it's offset with lighted knocks. What do I do? So he mentions, can he go to a weaker spine? He's been shooting 300. Or, what does he do? Like, how does he balance that? And, long story short, he's currently running a 540 grain arrow at about 280 feet per second, but he wanted to get down to like 475 to 500 grains at 300 feet per second. So, there's all kinds of variables here, Steve, but talk through that maybe hits, spine, FOC, total arrow weight, lighted knocks, or just talk about if he's at 540 grain at 280 should he even be pursuing you know a a uh, a lighter but faster arrow for his setup there's a million ways we could go about this but I thought it'd be fun to talk to
1: yeah there's a lot of points there a i think he's you know he's asking for too much um he could you know that light and knock all. is yeah <laughs> that i would dump that light and knock in a heartbeat um and, uh, you know, I guess it's illegal in Idaho, so we, I do not have a choice. Um, dump that lighted knock, because those are going to be at least 30 grains heavier than a standard knock, I'm guessing. Okay, so um, let's stop there for two seconds. Yeah.
0: He said he has trouble following his arrow without lighted knocks. Would you then just say, choose a different fletching color? Do you think he's All overestimating right. the importance of following his arrow? So if he has hesitation about ditching lighted knock, what's your advice there?
1: Yeah, my advice would be, uh, of all the things that he wants, um, that's the first thing to go, To in my you know, in my opinion.
0: I think it'd make the um, biggest difference right away.
1: Yeah, it'd make the biggest difference. And, you know, I guess I've never hunted with a lighter knock, so my uh, maybe people who shoot them swear by them. But they've been around for a long time, and I still don't think they're extremely popular. I don't think, you know what I mean? If they're that, that much of a... Um, game changer, then they'd be on 95% of people's bows, and, and they're not, so, um, but that's just my assumption, um, I could see where, in certain scenarios, are really, really nice, you know, the one, one question that jumps to mind is this guy, he didn't say what type of hunting he's doing, did he, is he out west, is he, is he hunting whitetails out of a tree stand, because, you know, there's yeah, very different, that's uh, a
0: great question, I yeah. don't have it down in my notes, but I want to say he was elk hunting,
1: okay, all right, um, you know, if you're, I, th- I think if you're a tree stand guy and you're overanalyzing it to that point, you're, you're doing way, way, way too much. Like, you know, you're 20, 30 extreme 40 yard shots. This is all like moot points and none of it matters. Yeah. I mean, he's just a-, a, he's just asking for too much. You can't have, can't have it all. Like you can't, uh, the only answer is, is there a light, sh- a super light arrow shaft out there, uh, that gets him a 300 spine and is, you know, I don't know what, he didn't say what arrow he's shooting. Did he? Yeah, not, not in. Or a list of grains here. per inch. or anything. Yeah. yeah. You know, if he's shooting an FMJ that's, you know, probably 11 and a half grains per inch. Yeah, there's going to be some, um, some arrows, some small diameter carbon arrows out there that can get a super stiff spine and probably be under nine grains per inch. But I'm just not sure, you know, we need that information, I guess, to elaborate further. But, um, you know, I, for me, it's like, I, you know, we kind of talked about this the other day is, uh. Builds like I have a target weight in mind. Um, and then I have, I do have a, you know, an FOC is, is obviously in mind. I don't put a lot of importance on it. Go back to, um, that episode. I don't know. Man, that was a couple years ago. The first one we did with Darren Cooper. Uh, that guy knows more about, uh, technical side of archery than, than a lot of people will forget in their lifetimes. Um, or he'll forget more than people know in their lifetimes. um, and you know he was just like eh like whatever like eight eight to twelve percent as long as you're getting good air flight who cares uh and i think that to me that is that rings pretty true um so if this guy's like really trying to you know he's got his ideal arrow weight and he's like you know nine and a half or ten percent and not 12 like i wouldn't get too hung up on that you know I mean, he probably just read some article that said you need to have 12 percent foc and um and is going off of that and you know that's a uh, I don't think it's super, super critical on exactly what that is, as long as you're getting good arrow flight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be the number one, number one thing is if, if he's got this 540 grain arrow that's flying like a dart, uh, it's got everything he wants, but it's just a touch heavy, and all all he's trying to do is just drop drop the uh, drop the weight to pick up 20 feet per second. I don't think that's worth chasing that, um, you know. And and then we've talked too about you Know, I think 280 to 290 is a sweet spot for a hunting arrow to be. Once you start going like three, you know, over 300, you get to 310, 315, three, you know, 320 for a hunting setup would just be screaming fast. Um, there's not many bows are going to do that without a super light arrow. Um, you start running into more tuning issues, things become more finicky. Uh, you know, the torque, uh, you know, you, you got to. 280 grain arrow and you kind of slightly torque or 280 feet per second arrow um and you slightly torque the riser versus a a 320 foot foot per second arrow and you slightly torque the riser when you're you're in a hunting situation uh you're going to have a a different uh different result at the end of it you're going to be a lot less accurate with that faster arrow because it's just going to be a lot less forgiving so um yeah rambling here there's a lot of questions to that but I, i think at the end of the day he's he's uh, short of finding an arrow out there that's a, a, the same spine, but just lighter grains per inch, I don't think there's a, a solution for what he wants.
0: Again, there's so many variables here. I was curious to see what you said, but when I read it, I mean, he's saying his current setup is 540 grains at 280 feet, 280 feet per second. I had that same thought of like, you're in a good speed range, you know, and you can go a little bit faster. And with pretty much zero investment, If he ditches lighted knocks, he's number one, automatically decreasing overall uh, arrow weight. He's going to gain speed, and he's going to gain FOC all at the same time, just by ditching the lighted knocks. So that would be my question, which is kind of where you start, Steve, of do you really need the lighted knocks? Because if you ditch those, you're essentially getting three of the benefits you're trying to seek, less weight, higher speed, higher FOC, and that's without buying new arrows, building new arrows, or any major investment, like just from switching to a lighted knock to a standard knock, you're getting a lot of what you want um, for minimal effort, minimal cost. So that, that'd be the first thing that I would try. Um, from there, I think you're right. The only to try and get everything he's asking for, your only option is to try and find a lower gpi arrow just something that's a lighter shaft overall but you don't you know he kind of mentioned in there specifically can he change his spine um no and i'd say no there's no yeah there's no chance with with his draw and those speeds you need to be shooting that 300 um you know i've gone back and forth and i don't i typically shoot 30 to 30 and a half um draw somewhere in that range over the years depending on the bow and what release i'm using and all that and there's been some bows I've been able to kind of tune down and like borderline run a three forty um spine, but more often than not I have to be, you know, at three hundred or closer. So I, you know, and it sounds like he's running you know, even higher um energy than I am a little bit. So yeah, I don't think you can go beyond uh three hundred there. Try the ditch and light and knock, you might get a lot of what you're asking for. Cool, that's a good one for today, Steve. Let's, uh, let's see. we got full episode tomorrow. Uh, you'll be out camping with the fam enjoying that. We'll get back to mm-hmm. it. Guys, as always, got any questions, topics, suggestions, anything like that, just shoot us that email to podcast at xomountaingear.com. We'll talk to you soon.